The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, media, technology, Hollywood. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Bob Iger upsetting a lot of people with his comments that the ask from the strikers was unrealistic on the same day that Disney announced news that Bob Iger would be staying around for another two-year deal and earning $54 million in the process. In Disney's case, it's a very disciplined company. It's a machine. The Walt Disney Company, venerable multinational entertainment conglomerate Blue Chip, well, it's broken with shares back to 2014 levels on succession worries, a crippling talent strike, a collapsing television business, and panic over just how to make money on streaming. It all has Bob Iger in his second tour as CEO under pressure to break up the whole thing. Seriously? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is FullDRadio.com. Please rate us. If you're listening to us on the radio, note that while we often have to cut for broadcast length, the entirety of every interview is available on podcast. Follow along on all the socials at handle FullDRadio. My DMs, alas, are always open. Joining me from the Eurozone is Claire Atkinson of the Media Mix newsletter and podcast. Claire was a media correspondent at NBC News, Insider, gosh, the New York Post, very well-traveled, and she's striking out on her own, which we will discuss. How are you? I am doing great. It's very hot here in the southern Mediterranean, as you've probably seen on the news. There's a giant heat wave, so trying to keep cool inside. So I have to tell you that well, the, the consternation and the fury and everything with the writer strike in the United States, which I know you're covering closely, and your substack is getting incredible traction out of the gate on this, is I have to imagine that this is kind of Disney and Hollywood summer from hell in a certain respect. You have a writer's strike, you have the pronounced collapse of what's left of the linear cable bundle. You have underwhelming numbers at a theme park when it applies to a conglomerate such as Disney. You have Bob Iger uh, giving... Uh, press, I think, to CNBC saying nothing's off the table, including selling ABC and FX. You have a and stock ESPN. market that, and ESPN, yeah, and, which and is kind of unthinkable. Yeah, yeah. It's all happening. Yeah. I mean, it's the summer of discontent where it comes to the pay TV ecosystem. As you said, everything is going wrong. I mean, even the the cinema, you know, the box office used to be a $13 billion business for Disney. That's also having their, their creative issues with the studios. The writers and the actors strike will create issues down the line for movie openings. Like, Nothing is firing right now. And Bob Iger articulated that point from Sun Valley, upsetting a lot of people with his comments that the ask from the strikers was unrealistic on the same day that Disney announced news that Bob Iger would be staying around for another two-year deal and earning $54 million in the process. So I think people have felt that you know, that was a, a tone deaf thing to do to announce that news at that particular moment that writers are really feeling the pinch from streaming and the, and the different ways they're paid these days. It's very different to the pay TV era when everybody got a piece of a show that was big. So if you were on NCIS, you'd get royalties down the line for many years. I'm sure that the, the actors on Friends are still getting paid. Seinfeld's still getting paid. Um, but when Netflix came around, they made a calculation that they would just pay people more money up front and they would keep what's called the back end. And so if a show did well in the future and it continues to bring in subs, they've paid their dues. And now writers and actors are kind of saying, well, you know what? We want to see some portion of our labor when it does well for you. We want that to come back to us. And so that's what the fight's about. How do they resolve it? Nobody knows. The LA Times just wrote a big piece that there's nobody really can step into the vacuum of leadership on the big media side to mediate the issue. 
Uh, I mean, the feds have even been involved. So, you know, it's just one of any number of problems this year. Other problems, advertising is going away. What we're seeing is, you know, the television upfront is happening right now. And more of those $70 billion of, of ad commitments that used to be made every year to the likes of the TV and, and, you know, to some extent, the streamers, there are more people with their hands out for those ad dollars. So what you're seeing are, you know, not just TikTok and not just Snap and not just YouTube. What you're seeing is big companies like Walmart and Uber building what are called uh, retail media. And that essentially means we see ourselves as providing a media platform. We have an audience and we want a piece of those ad dollars. And, you know, we're seeing that the upfront's likely to be down about 5% this year. And so if you're Disney, Paramount and uh, Warner Discovery, you don't know where you're at right now because... So, but Claire, if you, yeah. if you deign to put, if you, if you want to put advertising aside for a second, we saw yeah. the power of the Disney brand. I say this a million times. When the world stopped at the onset of the pandemic and their theme parks were closed and live sports had kind of shut down, the NBA had delayed the season. That was uh, you know, a, a death knell, you would think, for ESPN and the other things. Advertising fell off a cliff. Unemployment shot up to 15%. Disney was able to switch on the over-the-top Disney Plus app, which is a killer app, which so many people signed on for that great teaser price. I did it for my kids. I think it was $6.95 or $7. It's closer to double that right now. So I would say, in theory, if you want it to be Bob Iger, who's back, he's 72. I don't know why he necessarily signed up for this second tour, this extended tour, because he's going into so many buzzsaws right now. But Mm. why can't you theoretically say your cash cow is ESPN? So if that's going away on the cable dial, why don't you say, all right, if you want ESPN, Pay 50 bucks a month for it on an app. Well, if your business partners are the NBA and the NFL, they want to see the maximum number of people watch their leagues. They want to see young people watching their their sports. And if you're ESPN, I don't know off the top of my head how many subscribers they have, but it's not as many as ABC plus ESPN. And so, you know, the calculus of the cost of those sports rights divided by the number of people that see them doesn't, the math doesn't work. Um, you know, we have seen Jimmy Pitaro, who, who runs ESPN Plus and ESPN, saying, you know, it's something we're considering in the future, but they're not quite there yet. And the minute they decide to put the big, big sports on ESPN Plus, then they're ruining their, whatever is left of that existing business, the pay TV households, I think are around 70 million now. ESPN gets at least eight bucks from every household who has a pay TV subscription. So even with all the collapse of linear or traditional media, um, it's still a business that Disney needs to hold up and needs to continue to run alongside streaming until streaming is has uh, you know the same number of concurrence viewers that you can get on a Monday night with Monday Night Football, for instance. You almost said it parenthetically, eight dollars per cable subscriber. I mean, this is akin to if you walk into the supermarket, you know, you have a hundred dollars to spend on on several things that you want, but they force several things in your basket and they charge you, you know, eight dollars if you're a, yeah. a suburban mother somewhere. It's like paying for a, a fruit cake that you didn't want. I mean, ESPN for the longest time for Disney has been a license to print money and you see this uh this snowballing effect of massive contracts to the likes of um and the nba nfl Mm. nfl on espn that these things are passed down to the cable customer and you could manage that declining annuity i mean i bet there are typewriter manufacturers out there there are traditional light bulb manufacturers word processor manufacturers but at some point it's kind of innovator die and you feel like the tipping point has been hit you know, I see you cover Apple TV, for example, in Major League Soccer. There are others out there who have market capitalizations that dwarf Disney's. I mean, you're talking Apple is a $3 trillion company. Disney yeah. is maybe yeah. $170 billion, and it's distressed right now. They can go out. Amazon has dabbled in the Thursday night NFL. It might be the dregs. This stuff is not – talk about that asymmetry, that it's not economic to the gigantic tech players. I mean, there's YouTube, I'm thinking mm-hmm. Amazon, I'm thinking Apple TV, but it's very core and economic to the likes of Disney with ESPN and Comcast and NBC Sports. 
Yeah, I mean, at the heart of this year of discontent is really Netflix. Netflix's earnings are out this week. Um, you know, they have in excess of 200 million subscribers. They have a global business. If there's a strike, they can go somewhere else and, and produce content. And so, you know, everybody wanted to chase the Netflix model. Everybody wanted to look like a tech company. And that's why Disney restructured itself to look like a tech company and be valued by Wall Street in the same way Netflix was. And then what happened is all of these media companies spent literally billions of dollars launching their streaming products. And now Wall Street is saying, okay, guys, it's time to show some profits here. Where are they? And so Peacock at NBC Universal, Max at Warner and Disney Plus, ESPN Plus and Hulu at Disney are all under pressure to show profits next year. And that's why all these cuts are happening. And to your point, Robin, you really know this space pretty well because, you know, Apple is doing the same thing. Apple has spent billions working with the likes of Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese and the creme de la creme of Hollywood talent and saying, you know, you got a project, we'll buy it. We want to be the purveyors of premium original content. And with not really much care about how many viewers that initially brings in for Apple TV Plus. Now, you know, the game has changed because precisely as you say, Apple's a $3 trillion company and the Apple TV Plus business is estimated as 2% of its services business. It's tiny. Yeah. And, you know, they're prepared to pay $2.5 billion for MLS over 10 years. And maybe they'll be a buyer of ESPN. Or maybe they will swoop in and get the NBA. And it's not a fair fight, right? It's, it's kind of a you know, the tech guys have got these huge pockets and as costs go up, whether it is sports or entertainment content, they're much better able to weather um, price rises and say, okay, you know, we're giving away Amazon Prime for free right now. Maybe we start charging for it and they can switch that on down the line. And so, you know, that was one of the reasons that Disney kind of first got in the, the mess that it's in, it decided that it needed to buy Fox's cable channels and Fox's movie assets and Fox's production assets to compete with Netflix. What was that? A $70 billion acquisition a few years ago. And they yeah. had levered up for that. And it seemed great. Content was king. But kind of in the spirit of Logan Roy and succession, you wonder if and when Rupert Murdoch is selling as, as old as he is, that he's got kind of that, that snake sense of when to get in and when to get out. He's typically yeah. been a buyer. Uh, has in in the past with the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post and all these other assets and sports, but he was divesting. I think at a time when the market was rewarding these these treasure troves of content to be able yeah. to say if you're, you know, in, in in Disney's case, it's not just Disney Plus, but it's ESPN Plus, but then Hulu, which was a strange beast. We don't talk about it often. There was mm. shared ownership, vestigial uh, ancestry with with Comcast, and now they're under the gun to acquire the rest of. Hulu. So do you want to do that? Do you want to be in a swap position? The market is saying you have too much in the way of expenses and debt and leverage and the worm has turned and you need to sell. But exactly what are you selling into in a market like this, Claire? Like I can't imagine who would be a buyer for ABC? What with the salaries at kind of Good Morning America and ABC News? Who would swap necessarily uh, ESPN? Would Comcast swap ESPN for Comcast? How does this, this play out in your head? And who has leverage if the writers and actors are striking and Bob Iger is in there and he's begging for forbearance? You're in a weak mm -hmm. position to kind of auction these things off anyway. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, Rupert, as you said, made a brilliant deal to sell his assets at the time that he did when there were multiple buyers. Comcast wanted it. Disney wanted it. They bid against each other and, and Rupert ended up becoming a multi-billionaire if he wasn't already. Um, what's happening now, uh, there's been a little bit of a deal standstill, a deal flow dried up when interest rates increased. And, you know, the natural buyers of these legacy media assets is usually private equity. And, you know, you could ask the question of why would anybody want to buy DirecTV? It's a satellite company. Nobody needs to go to DirecTV anymore. They can do streaming. And yet TPG decided it wanted to, to be in business 
in uh, legacy television. So did Apollo. And so they'll be the kind of players. And, and you have very motivated yeah. people like AT&T that made a mistake in that case. Or, mm-hmm. you know, AT&T made a mistake with Warner Brothers. I know we get into the arcana and the inside baseball of this, but when you're eager to kind of offload this stuff and somebody comes up that might be a suboptimal buyer, such as a David Zaslav, yeah, you know, I mean, he's- the market's pressuring you to sell. Yeah, the market, well, the market was telling Bob Iger, you've got too many toys and you need to pick. Either you're in linear or you're in streaming, but you can't be in theme parks and movies and streaming and linear and ESPN and sports rights. There's just too many assets and you need to pick a lane. And I think Bob Iger has been saying that we need to focus on what we do best and we need to focus on specific things and let other things go. So you know, we've all been waiting to hear what, what is that? And, you know, we'll see who steps up for ESPN. Like you said, it could be a trade with Comcast for Hulu, or it could be Apple decides to come in and and be a partner there since they want to grow their sports assets. Um, But what I see more likely happening is, you know, private equity sitting around like turkey vultures waiting for really desperate people to say, you know what, I just got to get this off my plate now. I need to boost my earnings and and I got to get rid of some of these assets. Full disclosure, do stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Claire Atkinson of the Media Mix Newsletter and Podcast. One of my favorite bylines, the very well-traveled Claire Atkinson, who's joining us from Paris, I believe. France, uh, I'm in France, nice. somewhere in France. Oh my gosh, she's in Nice. We're going to get to this. The life of Lansing freely uh, with a Eurorail pass. But I got to... I got to say, isn't this an admirable problem if you're Bob Iger? Again, you signed up for this after he's worth multiples of what his top line compensation would be for the next two or three years. He didn't have to do this. He's very big into the massive yachts and being seen and and uh, cashmere and pastel colored suits and mountain biking. He, he cuts a swath. Um, but to the extent that if if you you know in portfolio theory they say you should have a bunch of you'd be well off if you have a bunch of non correlating assets. I'm thinking. This guy has, even if it's declining, uh, live sports empire, the name in live sports and sports coverage with ESPN. He has the theme parks. He has Marvel. He has a Star Wars business. He has Pixar, which Mm -hmm. kind of is the Steve Jobs DNA and whatnot. He has ABC, which ABC News is a prestige thing. It's not necessarily a profit driver for the company. He has the Disney Plus app, which there is pricing power because your kids would chop your head off if you <laughs> if you you know got rid of that. You have Hulu, yeah. which could be a tile on that. You have ESPN Plus. Isn't this a great high class problem to have? That ultimately it's about reconciling costs with pricing power. I know I'm, again, I'm being kind of Wall Street arcana with Hmm. that, but this is just about right-sizing the business. It is. I mean, I can imagine it's painful. He's coming back to do something painful. And I think he came back because he literally couldn't stay away. He felt that Disney was being mismanaged for the two years that Bob Chapek was in charge and it was off on the wrong direction. And he came back supposedly at the behest of the board to come and fix things. And I guess what he found when he came back is that the world had really changed and the huge business that Disney was, um, was starting to struggle. And one of his first moves out of the gate was to say, we need to cut $5.5 billion from cut the cost structure and lay off 7,000 people. That's a lot of, that's a lot of people. And then when you do that, you have to restructure the business and, you know, the business is essentially now theme parks. It is uh, TV and movies and ESPN. So it's three stools, but yeah, it's a high, high class problem. Disney has some incredible assets. Um, But I think as, you know, as we said, Wall Street is forcing all of these big media companies to pick and choose the lane (laughs) and to skinny down and to focus on the knitting. What was the tipping point for them? Was it, for example, the death of the DVD? I remember the the greatest problem you had as a parent was if this first run Disney or Star Wars film came out, you had this staggered period where you could only pay $30 or so for the DVD, where I'm convinced that DVD cost 50 cents to burn, maybe. It was such a cash cow for the industry, but then that technology went away. It went to over the top. Uh, you know, the $7 app, the $10 app doesn't even begin to 
to cover the cost that they have for being the owner of 21st Century Fox. Is it Disney, Pixar, the absence of the cash gusher of the you know, movie theater industry, which I think, you know, COVID clearly sounded a death knell for that. Um, was there, you know, I know I don't want to go back and think too much, but was there one tipping point that kind of, because everybody knew this was happening. We had Apple TV and over the top yeah. 10 years ago, we knew that ESPN and cord cutting was going to continue at a certain pace a decade ago. I mean, I think the obvious thing is that COVID changed everything. COVID changed everything. What happened was, you know, uh, they have projections in 2019 where they thought they would be in 2023. And, you know, something cataclysmic happened. The Black Swan, the uh, production shut down, the sports shut down, the movie shut down, the business uh, was at a standstill. And, you know, coming out of that hasn't been easy. And also what you saw is, you know, this tremendous ballooning of streaming viewership that's fallen back to earth as people have gone about their way. And, you know, we've been maybe a year out of COVID, maybe more. Um, but then, you know, things go back to normal and suddenly you've spent all of this money on entertainment and content and it doesn't, I don't think it really mattered what the cost was. It was just spread the money around, get the biggest projects and most content and pipe it down uh, the streamers. And as you know, as you observed, there's only so many people with so much time uh, to stream these shows and so much money. And uh, I'm sure consumers are probably feeling the pinch when it comes to all the subscriptions they have and inflation and... Um, yeah, I mean, you know. if you think about that, if you back of the envelope, what a fully loaded ESPN app would cost, what an ad-free Hulu would cost, plus what a f you know fully loaded ad-free Disney Plus would cost, plus the cost of your broadband connection, that approximates what the entire cable bundle may have recently cost for a household. Yeah. So I guess it was maybe cheaper to have it all bundled and be forced to pay for ESPN and... Uh, you know, that that option is still there and 70 million people choose that big bundle and, you know, it's an easy lean back uh, service to use. And, you know, I think the danger with streaming right now is that people are flooded with the, the commodification of uh, all of these different tiles and not really knowing where shows are and not really knowing how long they're going to be on air until they're axed or they're gone. And so, you know, there's something of a... Um, consumer dissatisfaction. And I think the biggest expression of that will likely be Netflix's crackdown on passwords. You know, you spread that uh, 10 bucks, 15 bucks a month between family members and friends, and suddenly everybody has to pay for their own service now. So let me ask you, do they yeah. really want to know? I mean, cynically, do they really want to know what their true staying power is if they were to not gradually flick off that switch and say overnight, okay, zero password sharing allowed anymore? Wouldn't you suddenly reveal like the, 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 metaphor of I think Warren Buffett said when the tide goes out you see who's not wearing swim trunks and you see how inflated <laughs> your subscriber numbers were indeed and how much mooching is going on including yeah. right here you know props to my brother but go ahead <laughs> uh yeah I think every family can put a hand up and say yeah oh, yeah okay I think my password's being used by a lot of people um I you know I guess there are just at that inflection point where they want to show Wall Street exactly how many people do pay for it or can pay for it Netflix uh, flipped on an advertising tier as well in the past 12 months. Um, you know, Wall Street's going to be eager to hear how that's going. That's uh, something that takes away revenue from Disney and from Warner and Paramount. That's uh, a new thing. So, um, you know, Netflix is the ultimate competitor still and everybody, you know, from quarter to quarter, there's an expectation. Is this the quarter it's fading and it never does except once or twice in its history? And so we'll see what happens. Too many players, too little pricing power. I'm thinking about also rands like Paramount Plus. I mean, let's not forget, Paramount has CBS and the CBS News Empire and theoretically somewhere the 60 Minutes Library and everything that happened there. And I think to a certain extent, Yellowstone, Am I, I, I lose track. Yeah. But yeah. that's kind of an orphan. You, you get the impression that that can't go it along. Peacock, it just pushed through another price increase. That is the uh, shingle for NBC Universal and Comcast, which... Uh, you know, it's not make or break for them, but it's certainly their front facing mm -hmm. over the top app. Mm -hmm. um, I don't even know where AMC and the other cable dance partners are in this. I know you get asked this all the time at every cocktail party, including these you know gorgeous ones in, in Nice, <laughs> France, right? How do you see this playing out in terms of logical merger partners? Not that anything is logical right now. There's a hunt 
for cost rationalizations for you know the 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 other i mean the, the the considerations that if you already have a broadcast network like if you're an nbc universal you have nbc the feds might not let you take over a certain asset with yeah. abc or vice versa or cbs paramount might work with cnn which may or may not be for sale at warner brothers discovery which is its whole can of worms right yeah you probably couldn't have two broadcast networks in the same conglomerate and you probably couldn't have two news networks and that's what sparked speculation about cnn um but paramount is an interesting business story because you know cbs used to be separate from the cable assets and then in uh, a couple of years ago they put them together and they were worth 30 billion dollars and the last i checked paramount global the new name for the company was worth about 10 billion dollars so it's shrinking and it's shrinking fast and i think you know the likes of comcast and the likes of warner with shareholder john malone who is a you know a veteran player of of the m&a circuit are watching what happens can they keep moving forward on their own or does shari redstone who's a controlling shareholder at paramount need a partner and at what point does she say okay this ice cube is melting and i need to do something and you know who waits out who i think is like this really intriguing game right now because it seems to be like the three partners paramount warner comcast they're the most likely to come together in some constellation before I get to you, Claire, and I'm eager to do that, uh, on Disney, is there a possibility that Disney, you know, while the, the brand can survive and the theme parks certainly and the, uh, you know, the, the, the gorgeous film assets from the golden age of you know, the 1940s and 1950s and the Star Wars library, that just like General Electric, GE used to be talked of as a massive conglomerate, they could sell off the parts and license it. You know, the Chinese uh, washing machine manufacturer uses the GE nameplate right now on certain things, that it's not the end of the world if Disney breaks up as a conglomerate. Nobody will necessarily know if ABC is private equity owned. Nobody will know if the Disney Channel, which I I don't even know what that shows, or if ESPN, how many people on the street associate ESPN with Disney, Walt Disney's staying power, if it gets the stock price up. And the stock price, again, is below the kind of the COVID Uh, bottom levels, which is mind-blowing to think. The market has had a tremendous run since, but that it's round trip like this. I believe in early 2021, Disney actually hit an all-time high on that euphoria about streaming and everybody being at home and binging Disney Plus and and the Mm -hmm. optimism, the starry-eyed optimism for all this endless growth and the pricing power of the app. So much of that has fallen back down to earth. And here you have a kind of a visionary high gloss executive back to maybe have to sell it in parts yeah i think that's very likely that's uh that's i mean i I guess if you're bob Iger, it's a tough thing to do when you put all the pieces together and having to spin them out again but that's the cycle of media right spin it out put it back together spin it out again and that seems to happen like every 10 20 years every generation we see these uh things get bigger and we've seen a a period of consolidation and maybe we'll see things spin out again i mean certainly time warner or warner media or whatever it was called at the beginning has been through so many trades it's kept bankers in fees for for decades So it really will be intriguing to see what happens next. Um, To your point, does anybody really know, like, uh, who owns ABC? Do consumers make that connection between Disney? You know, I'm all ears. And I think the the questions that people are asking in media circles are, who is that successor to Bob Iger who will take the mantle from him? Um, You know, he's been unable to identify that person for so many years. The board seems to have been unable to find anybody they view as as good as Bob Iger to replace him. And so, you know, I don't know what that says about both of those parties, because there's been a lot of good executives move through Disney. And so they've said that succession is a priority. It appears that it isn't because Bob's still the guy and he will be for the next two years. It feels like life imitating art. And I have to bring in the wild card. What about the Middle East, the Saudis? You see it with the conflagration over uh, Live Golf and and the PGA. But if there's a willingness to pay and oil prices were levitated and the Saudis want to kind of, you know, greenwash their reputation, who's to say they can't come in and negotiate for ESPN? That's that's a rounding error for them if if it's priced anywhere from $8 to $12 billion. 
Yeah, I think that's a really, really good observation. Um, it seems that not just the Saudis, but the Qataris, um, also uh, th- their their spending on entertainment assets in the US is phenomenal. And I think people don't notice it because it's incremental. Um, you know, the PIF, the Public Investment Fund, has been really active at buying assets and encouraging Western companies and studios to shoot in the desert there. I think Dune was, was shot mm. there. Um, and it feels like, you know, that period when the Washington Post correspondent was murdered by uh, some Saudi thugs and everybody was looking at who was behind that, that period of time seems to have past where people uh, didn't want to do any business with the Saudi government or have any of those relationships. It feels like when beggars can't be choosers, like when you need the money and you need a partner and they're offering you the money, people are going to say, okay, I'm going to hold my nose and I'm going to take the money and roll with it unless anybody else has anything to say about it. And most times they don't. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Our guest is Claire Atkinson joining us from Europe. She is the Founder of the Media Mix newsletter and the Media Mix podcast, which is tearing it up on the socials since launching, I believe, a few months ago. I want to remind our listeners, if you're listening to us on radio, we're capped at kind of 52 minutes broadcast length, but I love to go over on pod. And you could, of course, catch us wherever you get your pods. The link is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and tell your girlfriend. Uh, But Claire, I got to talk about you because parallel to all of this is you have self-disrupted. You felt it. For the longest time in your career covering the industry, you have worked for big players such as NBC, which is Comcast, you know, Uni. You've worked for the New York Post, which is Rupert Murdoch owned. You were recently at you know, Business Insider, which I think was bought by a, a Axel Axel Springer. A, Axel Springer, um, yeah, and and others. And so, a, as journalists out there, many of whom have gone off and seceded to the likes of Substack or having their own newsletters, there's this kind of declaration of independence. At a certain point, the benefits of a conglomerate giving you an advance kind of on your byline or the back office elements or HR and everything is diminished so much that you don't you feel you don't have much to lose to make this leap of faith. Talk to me about that. Yeah, well, you know, as you mentioned, I'm sitting here with my little microphone and my Apple Mac and I'm in France and I can do the job that I'm doing easily um, from New York in a different country and I can do it when at a time of my choosing. Um, And so, you know, that was part of the calculus is freedom. I wanted some freedom to set my work hours and I, I guess What I should say is that you end up working all the time when you're working for yourself because you're doing every job, marketing and finance and expenses and journalism and uh, production. So I don't want to paint a picture of it being super rosy. It's hard work, but it was what I wanted. And I guess my inspiration was really writing about the creator economy and listening to the team and talking to people who'd built their own audiences and were able to monetize them through things like Substack or Patreon or YouTube and really feeling like, hey, if they can do it, why not me? And so that was really the idea. I'm probably, you know, the millionth journalist to launch their own Substack. I felt that maybe I was late doing it because certainly lots of people who have jobs have a Substack as a side hustle. So this is really just the beginning for me and we'll see how it goes. But already I'm a bestseller on Substack after just a month of launching. So that gives me uh, some hope that this could be, this could go well. I hope it does. When we talk about login fatigue with the apps and, you know, you know, Meredith Coppett of the New York Times, they've successfully transitioned over to digital. They bought Uh, The Athletic, which maybe they overpaid for, but they have Wordle and other things. It's looked at now as kind of an indispensable subscription, as is Netflix, maybe Disney Plus if you're a parent. You are now effectively asking people for a share of their subscription spent. And I don't know how you do that. I mean, maybe the faith is, all right, I feed this as much as I can. I become a Substack bestseller. And there's a reminder as you scroll down, hey, if you like this, there's a more extended version of Claire Atkinson if I can convince you to subscribe. Is it how that works? Yeah. I mean, I think people pay for stories about where they work. And if you know something that they don't know, and oftentimes as a reporter, you are in touch with their bosses uh, more closely than they are. 
then they need to, you know, get a subscription and find out what's happening in their companies. I mean, I know from working in big conglomerates that you can often feel like you almost know nothing about what's happening inside. And so, you know, the hope is that you can get enough very strong stories that are really well reported out where people say, you know what, I can't afford not to read that story about where I work, or I can't afford to not know what Apple TV Plus is doing. And so, you know, so far, so good. And, you know, one of my biggest stories has been about the vice bankruptcy. If you're affected by that, you want to know absolutely every single detail of what's going on there and how the bankruptcy process is working and who's getting paid the bonuses and how you get your expenses back. And so I think you just have to become indispensable and try and find the stories that, you know, absolutely everybody has a question. You got to go find the answer. It reminds me of Dylan Byers within the CNN story. Clearly, you know, the Atlantic profile of Chris Licht, recently uh, defenestrated head of CNN. One of the major figures in this was Dylan Byers of Puck. Like I think he previously wrote for Politico and other publications. He was at CNN. But when you become such a player and everybody is reading for that journalist scoop and it becomes mandatory spending, at some point, you know, does is is old new where you become such a must-read byline that a big media company or even one of these VC-backed ones such as Puck or Semaphore steps up and says, we want to offer you a salary again, Claire. You can have your freedom and everything. Just let us... Um, again, it's like giving you an advance on your byline versus you having to go out and get this compensation a la carte. Am I wrong? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and I, I feel like I don't want to be the person writing about only one company because what happens is, you know, the stories uh, dry up and stuff happens elsewhere. So I've been very cognizant that my newsletter and podcast covers uh, the media business, but it's also going to cover tech and it's also going to cover marketing. So threads is a big story and, you know, things converge. And I think you've got to be on top of all of these different pieces of communications or entertainment sphere so that you know where the ball is going so that you can write about AI or chat GPT or whatever is hot and new and try and inform, get ahead of it and inform your audiences about what's going on as well as giving them the tattle about the pizzas getting cut at CNN, which was, you know, stuff that I'd also written about at Insider. But yeah, you know, to your point, um, there seems to be uh, an interest from investors who are looking at this digital artisan space and saying, is that a place we can invest money? Because obviously it's a lot cheaper to have journalists writing their own substacks than be paying them uh health benefits and retirement benefits and everything else. It takes a lot of, it, it, a lot of cost out of uh, the media industry if you have a confederation of folks running their own substacks. Artisanal Atkinson. I love the sound of that. <laughs> Let me ask you, though, we barely discussed AI, and it's a point of contention if you look at Fran Drescher's tirade, you know, representing the Actors Union and the tremendous uncertainty, the, the future, you know, Kubrick is here. God bless Stanley Kubrick. I think he passed away in 99. What would he have thought about a Trump presidency or artificial intelligence in the future? There was this episode of, I don't know if it was Planet Money or the indicator on NPR, where they went out and took someone's voice and effectively ran it through millions of cycles on the machine. And that host's persona was replicated. I mean, beautiful implications for uh, narration, audiobooks, uh, deceased actors and the like in their estate. But it's also terrifying if you're me and you traffic kind of in your persona and your voice, the fact that that, can, that essence can live on and you're not going to be compensated from it. You can be mm -hmm. uh, multiplied and it's like, a, it's like an episode of Black Mirror. It I is. kid you not. Are yeah. you not worried about this? I mean, I, know, I don't know if podcasting is an economic part of your business, if it's an add-on, but your persona can really be digitized and replicated like now. It can. And, and you know, that's uh, one of the things that the actors are concerned about, that um, what goes in your contract is a, a simple boilerplate. We can replicate you in AI and you can't even negotiate the point because you don't have any of the leverage and suddenly your image and likeness is somewhere else. I actually interviewed a, a, a voiceover actress recently, and she told me that she has an AI on the shelf replica of her voice that she sold to an AI company. And so you can buy her voice in multiple different in Mandarin or, you know, whatever kind of style you want her voice to speak in. And she had mixed feelings about it. She told me, 
you know, I used to get a check for three thousand dollars for every time my voice was used. Now with AI, I'm getting a check for like nine thousand dollars a quarter. So she's earning more money. But at the same time, the question is, am I putting myself out of business? Because eventually nobody's going to need the real me. They'll just buy the off the shelf technical me. So, you know, I think there's a conundrum there. Nobody knows where it's going to go, but it is a debate that people are having. And, you know, I was hearing about AI written press releases, and now the media industry is going to use AI to write commodity stories like press releases. So do we end up in a place where AI is rewriting AI and the human element is negligible? I think that's a scary prospect. I'm going to break the fourth wall. I'm actually not here, Claire Atkinson. This is a Riverside widget talking (laughs) to you from Virginia to Nice, France, which is fine. (laughs) At some point, we'll just deputize, you know, our our AI facsimiles to do this. Close us out. You know, when I was a kid and go to the roller skating rink, they'd have free skate, free skate, couple skate. Um, What should I be talking about? What are you going to be covering? What are some other elements of your kind of entrepreneurial vision quest if you will. Yeah, I mean, I'm completely intrigued by all things Apple. And I think that one of the most difficult things about covering streaming, and I think it's difficult for the whole industry, is that everybody is is negotiating fees based on almost no information. You know, Netflix might tell you you're in the top 10, but it's maybe not going to tell you much more level of detail that you might need to negotiate a different kind of contract. And so my intention is to just kind of to the extent that I can, like pierce the black box of technology and have a look at these companies, find out like who are the decision makers. And, you know, Apple, you probably know, is like one of the most secretive companies out there. They don't talk about when people are hired. They don't talk about who does what where. And so that's a story that I really um, am keen to kind of continue reporting out. Like what what is their hope for Apple TV Plus? How long is Tim Cook giving um, this entity? How long does he see like funding the billions until there's some profits there? Sports is another huge story. Sports documentaries are really big and the absence of entertainment content moving forward. Everybody's running to, you know, reality shows and to sports rights and sports documentaries. And so that's a really interesting story to take a look at. And then, as you said, like, where is the money coming from? And it looks like the Middle East is stepping up to replace some of the cash that seems to have disappeared to outside to outside of the media business to other entities that have tried to make a play for that TV cash. Claire Atkinson in her artisanal iteration as... <laughs> Globetrotting media correspondent. I got to tell you, Nice, France beats the heck out of I think Langan's Pub in Midtown in a you know overpriced twenty five dollar burger with sources. But best of luck, and you're welcome back to come on the show. I'll say that you you are at themediamix.substack.com, and you could catch the Media Mix podcast, which I do wherever you get your pods. Right? Excellent. Yeah, Apple, Spotify, you name it, wherever you get your podcast, I am there. Please do come back on. I would love to. Thanks. It was great to chat with you, Robin. My pleasure. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. Follow, subscribe, and rate us at linkfulldradio.com. We are on all the social media channels at handle Full D Radio. Joining me is Neil Patel. He is founder and executive producer and investor and Emmy-nominated at Shipyard Entertainment in a past life. He was at the Martin Agency, where he helped me launch this show with his famous Ovitzian memo. If you think about Michael Ovitz of Disney, that stuff was like worth $1,000 a second. I'll get into that. But in a past life, in the late 90s and early aughts, he was director of corporate alliances at the Walt Disney Company in Burbank. And I got to read it, Neil, before you even say, hi, how are you or anything? We were exchanging text messages while Disney's blowing up. And you said, in 35 plus years of being in and around the business, I've never seen so much disruption and brokenness at the same time. Pandemic, plus streaming, plus contracts, plus explosion of viewer choice, and now AI. Yeah, that pretty much uh, and, sums And up. a succession challenge for Mr. Bob Iger. It's all there. This is arguably the most admired and understood and recognized media conglomerate on the planet. I was always impressed that it had such a diversified portfolio of assets, theme parks, which clearly were shut down during the pandemic, but have roared back when it acquired Cap City's ABC in the mid-1990s. ABC is a prestige brand. ABC News, Good Morning America, Lost, if you think of everything else that came with it. The acquisition of Pixar, 
uh, the Star Wars library and Lucasfilm's Marvel. It should be in the catbird seat right now, Neil. And I don't understand why Bob Iger at age 72 has had to come back and suggest that maybe a sale is coming up of various parts. The stock is at a multi-year low. It's even below where it was in the worst of the pandemic. How did this all happen? I think it's uh, some amount of hubris, some amount of bad luck, and, you know, sort of believing in the momentum of the business and how it works. I think it's really uh, easy to second guess these guys now, but if you look at the moves they were making, they were actually the right moves. So going all the way back to the Cap Cities acquisition, it wasn't ABC that was the gem. What turned out to be the gem was ESPN. And it generated, you know, it was a cash machine. It did really well for the company. And Disney's always had that. It's got, it's had multiple cash machines going, not only its theatrical business, which we all know it for, and the theme parks to some degree that we know it for, but the cable business. And I think where we are today is the decline of the cable business is happening faster than anybody thought. And a lot of the industry did not prepare well for it and ran headlong into the streaming business. And in Disney's case, I do agree with you, having been on the inside, it's a very disciplined company with a great brand that is really, if you're inside it, it's a machine. It's not just that theme parks exist or the animation business is there or, uh, you know, uh, theatricals taking off. Those pieces generate cash, but what Disney had before better than anyone else's they all work better together it is an engine it's a the whole thing is a machine and it's self-reinforcing mm. it's got the it's got sort of this wonderful creative feedback loop uh, that works whereas the other companies that it competes against weren't always that today uh, comcast nbc's assembled a similar kind of cohesive machine to to be in this business and those multiple revenue streams worked out really well but the cable business declined rapidly. That really hit the profitability of the company. Would you say that the cash, I mean, cash of ESPN had anesthetized ABC and Disney? Because you could have seen this coming. I mean, the earliest anybody saw these over-the-top boxes, people were getting Apple TVs in 2011 and 2012. And Iger himself was very prescient. I remember ABC's Lost was the hit in the mid-aughts. And he says we. he was pretty forward about coming up and saying we have to be less abashed about putting this stuff up online maybe the night after it airs. I mean, there's something that's very sacrosanct about linear television, but the world is increasingly moving online. But I feel like you might not understand that urgency if you have such a gusher from ESPN, if you're extracting something like 7 or $10 per cable customer across the country, regardless of the fact that you know, they don't use ESPN or ESPNU and the other things. And that cross-subsidizes other businesses and makes you think that your disruptive kind of off-the-cliff moment is is ever hence. Well, I think there's probably some truth to that in terms of it it, uh, it giving some comfort. But I think I've got to believe because ESPN was so pivotal to all these cable packages that were being sold that the cable operators needed that the ESPN business, the guys inside the company were pretty smart. Tom Staggs, uh, Kevin Mayer, they were the chief architects of the strategy that you know they put in place. They knew what was going to happen. I can't believe they didn't. They they did know what was going to happen. But my guess is that everybody thought, yes, cable is shrinking. Cable is going to be not the business it was, but ESPN was going to be uh, the last to be going down. There were many others, undifferentiated brands uh, that was going to happen to first. And all those things came to pass. And frankly, their strategy of, you know, betting on big brands and big franchises as part of the Fox uh, acquisition was supposed to anesthetize them from that. And to some degree, it did, owning those assets uh, in the way they do, in the consolidated way they do. Those brands still attract audiences. The challenge now is, one, the theme packs have come roaring back, fine, but that's the only real reliable cash source they have, right? That's basically an American rite of passage for most families. It's sold at a luxury price. That business still is still solid. And if you look at inside the company's ranks, a lot of the theme park executives are ascendant because of that success. 
It's funny, incidentally, you you and I here in Virginia, you drive up on the 95 and you see King's Dominion. Right. And the strip over the, the, the highway sign that used to say Paramount's King's Dominion. I mean, yep. Paramount is in a lot more trouble right now than, you know, Paramount parent of old Viacom and CBS and the MTV and Nickelodeon networks. It used to have a theme park business. It's like, you know, life imitating art with succession, that that business has had its highs and its lows and other media conglomerates have divested and, and both absorbed theme parks. But it seems like their shine is definitely back on that business again. Yeah, because the theme park experience can't be ripped off, right? You can't steal it. You can't somehow truncate it. You have to go there. And your kid's going to tell you, ask you why you haven't gone there. It's got a lot of pester power. And it's one of the, you know, in an era where, you know, personal connection and family experiences are rare, that is kind of a touchstone thing to do. And that business will always uh, be strong. It's a question of pricing it. It's a question of sort of these uh, larger uh, macroeconomic conditions uh, that drive it. I mean, the economy, when it's not great, people cut back on going down there. And when the economy is good, or in this case, what they're calling revenge travel, a lot of people who are locked up for two years coming out and wanting to be with each other, Disney was at the top of the slot. And I think their bookings are st- uh, still strong, despite the recent Wall Street Journal article, their bookings are strong for the fall in the spring. It's it's a solid business. The problem is the cable business is not a solid business and uh, no longer a solid business. Put that aside. Yep. Put that aside for the minute because they doubled down on content under Bob Iger, a calendar year before the onset of the can- pandemic. The close of Disney's $71.3 billion purchase of the film and TV assets held by 21st Century Fox. I mean, Rupert was selling and Bob Iger was buying. And that let Disney celebrate the merger with Fox. It added properties such as The Simpsons. That's no small asset. The Shape of Water, Avatar, Atlanta. If you think about everything else mm-hmm. over the years, Pixar Entertainment. I mean, that was a masterstroke. Lucasfilms and how they accordioned out Star Wars and Return of the Jedi to The Mandalorian and all these other things that make the Disney Plus app so sticky. So here we are lamenting cable networks and advertising. But again, I'm not playing dumb. Shouldn't they be sitting so pretty? They have all this premium content. And yes, they launched Disney Plus in the pandemic yes. at a teaser low rate. You're a parent of two young kids. You know this. And they they ratchet the price up. And there's, there's quite a bit of elasticity in that. I'm willing to pay for that library. Meanwhile, they have ESPN. They're going to have a controlling stake of Hulu, which has its own hits. Shouldn't they be absolutely sitting pretty? Shouldn't I be thinking of uh, linear television and advertising kind of the same way the New York Times thinks of print advertising right now? It's it's declining, but it's not my core business. I don't. Uh, I think I think so. I think that that was a startling thing, and this is where Iger coming out last week saying the TV business, at least the linear business, and I would argue the cable business as well, is is on the block as he is signaling that you know even though he came from the TV business himself and was a beneficiary both personally and as, as a company from it, that he is willing to, you know, uh, nothing sacrosanct. They may not be sitting pretty now, but I think they will always be around and they'll always um, endure because of the brand they have and the collection of assets they have. The Fox acquisition in retrospect looks like, you know, given how quickly the tides receded on this industry and how things are changing, the Fox acquisition, I think the smarter, the person who comes out ahead on that, I hate to say it, is Rupert Murdoch. He turned out to be, you know, those assets at this point may feel like maybe perhaps they overpaid. But in the long run, that IP and that library can be mined for a long time. And these are enduring uh, franchises, not to mention how well the Marvel acquisition went. Should they be sitting pretty? Yeah, they should be sitting pretty, but they're also dealing with some pretty significant tectonic shifts in the industry and in viewer habits and viewer alternatives, right? They have alternatives in terms of the non-professionally produced content on YouTube and elsewhere and so many other choices. One of the things that Iger did that most people don't know when he first took over he had a big meeting with all the executives at Walt Disney World. He had everybody come down. And the message of that was, we're getting out of distribution. And this was around 2002, 2003, if I recall. Maybe it was 2005. He made the declaration, we're getting out of distribution. So they sold you know, things like ABC Radio uh, you know, and all their assets that were distribution-related assets. 
And that was prescient uh, then, and it is still now. That whole sort of insight has come to fore. Distribution is now a commodity in many ways. So holding IP, especially differentiated IP, IP that you can, you know, you know who it's for, like Disney IP, still has a lot of power. What's gone wrong is the economics of it. How do people pay for that? You know, that's really what's at risk right now. And that's, we will figure it out as an industry. We'll always figure out how we're going to pay for it. You know, what constitutes a story will remain the same, a beginning, a middle, an end, and someone to root for, right? I, I hate the word content. Your car manual is a content, but your car manual on a side of a road at night <laughs> with a serial killer loose and your car broken down, that's a story, right? So to me, like content will matter. <laughs> we'll figure out how we're going to pay for it. The biggest challenge right now is we don't know what's, how big the pie will be, how, uh, what will go in the pie, and uh, if they'll even be pie-shaped. Like it's, There's so much uncertainty. They didn't know if the executives wanted to, to sort of make these deals. They don't know what the future really looks like and how everything's going to get paid for and therefore have some insight as to how they're going to share it with all the other folks that actually make the good stuff. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My guest is Neil Patel. Not to be confused with the GOP operative Neil Patel, who's launching some other startup with Tucker Carlson right now. This is Neil Patel, who is the Emmy-nominated founder and executive producer and showrunner with Shipyard Entertainment. In a past life, he was director of corporate alliances with the Walt Disney Company, and he's advised the company, and he's been a follower of the company. Uh, after that, I met him at the Martin Agency, where he was a media advisor, if you will. Go back to one of those. I, I, I flicked at it earlier, but Neil was famous at the Martin Agency, at least in my mind, from my cheap seats, for your Ovitzian whiteboarding. Michael Ovitz, the consigliere to Michael Eisner of Disney. Back in the day, you would have this knack for crystallizing <laughs> problems and whiteboarding them, and I would just sit there. And those were times, Neil, when I wish my mind had a kind of a, a replay or record button that I could go back and play this at one-tenth speed to absorb all of the granular, really wisdom, the tidbits <laughs> that you throw out there. To this day, I try to recreate it in dreams, but I can't. So it means we're overdue for another beer. But please tell me, if you were called in right now by Bob Iger, dust off the old book, look at all the assets. Here we are. We have this treasure trove again of content. We have Hulu, which even though we're suffocating under debt right now at about net debt of $40 billion after that massive acquisition of 21st Century Fox assets from Rupert Murdoch, I have to go and consolidate the rest of control of Hulu, the killer app from Comcast. That might mean 10 or $15 billion, or I have to swap out some equity in, in ESPN or something else. I have to somehow offer a direct, fully loaded ESPN product, which to be rationally economic might cost the subscriber 40 or $50 a month. And I have to price Disney Plus rationally. I mean, it might be in the teens right now. But should it be priced at $25? When all said and done, if you're asking every household for a commitment of about you know, $100 streaming to Disney, that's not going to work. I don't think families are going to have to pay $100 for Disney Plus. And the reason is the advertising tier. I'm talking Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN. Yeah, the advertising tier, that's, that's kind of the silver lining here that most people are not looking at. And you're beginning to see this on Netflix's business as well. The advertising tier will begin to start contributing into this revenue picture. So it's not all subsidized via subscriptions. Will there be a subscription-only household out there for various things? Yes, just as there are easy, you know, easy uh, drive lanes uh, on the freeway, right? Like there's going to be a subscription-only uh, clientele. There's going to be an ad-supported clientele that is not there right now. For the streaming business, the streaming business has its own issues. They all overbought, all of them. They bought too much content and they went out with these sort of loss leader prices. At some point, that gets resized and right-sized as it goes forward. The advertising tier kicks in and that's probably going to be 60-70% of the subsidy that's going to come from effectively, you know, corporate America or corporate everywhere really to subsidize it. So I think that's going to eventually right-size itself up. So hold on, you see advertising right. migrating, I mean, with some friction from the cable dial 
to from network television to these ad supported versions. I mean, I'm so spoiled, largely mooching off my brother, let's be honest, <laughs> with Netflix and you know, I pay for Disney Plus, I paid for HBO Max yeah. or Max or whatever they're calling it right now until succession ended. I like others have login fatigue and I turn in and out of these apps when I really need to watch something. I don't know how indispensable Peacock is. I don't know how right. indispensable Amazon is. Amazon and Apple have different motivations. So here you have Disney, which right now is encumbered by legacy media assets, ones that have no doubt been hugely lucrative through the decades, but a Netflix is unencumbered. A Netflix can come out in Tabla Rosa, you know, a decade ago, create House of Cards or pay for the Irishman and then decide that it wants to integrate into a an ad tier. Whereas Bob Iger and Disney have to navigate effectively the breakup of a massive entertainment conglomerate. Well, the task in that regard became easier for Iger and company now, right? Like there is no illusion left that we somehow got to protect the cable business, which perhaps, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, they couldn't do, operate with the kind of freedom that Netflix did from a business perspective and creative perspective. Uh, today, that's not really the issue, right? Like linear is flatlined, cable is declining, Everybody knows kind of where this is headed, and presumably the folks on Wall Street do as well. So cranking up the ad side of it makes a lot of sense because what the, on the ad side, what's possible now is a high level of precision targeting, which means those ad impressions are worth more than where they were being sold on, via cable. Neil, what is an ad worth these days? I Hold on. I think of you whenever I have to sit through these insipid YouTube ads, the latest one of Tom Brady and Hertz. Right. I mean, I can't skip through that. And by the way, YouTube wants me to pay 40 or 50 bucks a month. We hardly ever discuss YouTube, which is the alternative or TikTok for younger generations. Advertising doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't do anything for me right now. I understand I'm not the target audience or the target market. But is it possible that, that advertising is no longer going to be the kind of the crutch for this industry, that it's a, it's a brave new streaming world and ads won't help you? It's going to take a different shape, what, advertising, what passes for advertising, but advertising matters to you when you're in the market for a car, but not when you're not. And there's going to be a similar dynamic that plays across every single category. Um, the problem we've got is the ads at Google and Facebook are becoming less effective and more expensive. So there's a whole host of pe uh, people who invest in those ecosystems and, as advertisers are looking for alternatives. And, and filmed media has a role in that. Moving pictures and sound have a role in that. That's one of the reasons YouTube works, right? So, you know, going back to your earlier question of like, okay, if we we're whiteboarding, what will we do? Well, first, ESPN is still valuable, but it's a question of how valuable and to whom. ESPN, as good a business as it is and was, is always hostage to all the leagues and their demands for uh, fees, for rights, and the leagues can now set up their own channels. The regional sports business is going away, so they've got to find an answer to ESPN uh, in terms of the cable universe. The second thing is the theme park business, again, there's some issues around pricing, that's a solid business. I'd say keep an eye on that and make sure that that's, you know, really uh, firing in all guns. And then they're going to need to shift to some sort of, and this goes to Netflix too, some kind of a risk sharing formula um, uh, with the talent, which has worked for years and years and years. What does that risk sharing formula look like? The typical Netflix buyout might not work now. Because uh, how many of those, you know, because that only supports the people at the very top, the big Ryan Murphy $200 million deals, right? It doesn't support all the folks in between and all the way down. And this is a hit-driven industry. And so you've got to somehow build a new model that accounts for the fact that you've got Raiders of the Lost Ark opening on a weekend and a faith-based movie uh, beating it uh albeit for a half a million or whatever, on an opening weekend. Hits come from anywhere and everywhere, and you've got to account for that uncertainty, both in the lives of the artists who create it and the uh, conglomerates that effectively finance it and uh, distribute it. And when, when we're talking about this Writers Guild strike in SAG-AFTRA, uh, Bob Iger was interviewed at Sun Valley. Right. 
it was on CNBC Squawk Box uh, by David Faber. And his quotes were, I mean, they're, they're ringing everywhere. It's very disturbing to me. We've talked about disruptive forces on this business and all the challenges we're facing, the recovery from COVID, which is ongoing. It's not completely back. This is the worst time in the world to add to that disruption, he said. I understand any labor organization's desire to work on behalf of its members to get the most compensation and be compensated fairly based on the value that they deliver. We managed as an industry to negotiate a very good deal with the Directors Guild that reflects the value that the directors contribute to this great business. We wanted to do the same thing with the writers, and we'd like to do the same thing with the actors. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic, and they are adding to the set of the challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. And then you saw Fran Drescher representing the actors, uh, who's apoplectic. I mean, this guy, uh, Bob Iger... David Zaslav, all of them were paid so much over the past decade. They have massive yachts. They dress well. I don't understand why Bob Iger wanted to come back to this morass after retiring gloriously. I mean, Disney had its own succession issues. But this is a, this is quite an impasse. You have uh, people who were on the set of the Netflix hit, actors who were on Origins of New Black, who were being recognized everywhere, who had to take cabs but couldn't afford taxis because they were making $20,000 as actors. And this goes back to the underlying economics. It goes back to the underlying economics of a business that is designed, it is at its core, a hugely unstable business because you don't know where hits are going to come from and you don't know if you're in a hit project or not. And so that security was covered by residuals in the past as well as union contracts with healthcare and things like that. Well, if that security is not there because the overarching business model is changing, right? How are you as an executive going to guarantee that? And if I'm negotiating for the unions, why wouldn't I press my case now? Why wouldn't I press my case now when you can, when these guys have to negotiate with you to get new product in? Yeah, all those disruptions happen, but I would argue that most of those disruptions happen through macro factors like the pandemic or they happen because most of these uh, industry executives have had over 10 years to prepare for this big transition from cable and, you know, have done sort of a mixed job of it. Neil, we are not going to do a mixed job when you and I get disrupted into the inevitable halal food cart. Because uh, <laughs> I look forward to that. As a small bit player, as a kind of artisanal creator, and I know you don't like the word content, I am so grateful uh, for your participation in this show, which is now entering its ninth year. You're always welcome back on as a kind of a founding father, a consigliere, a showrunner, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Neil Patel of Shipyard Entertainment, formerly an executive at Walt Disney. Please come back, sir. Thanks very much. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and Radio IQ WVTF, our home NPR member station. Again, if you are listening to us on the radio, note that while we often have to cut for length, the entirety of every interview is available on podcasts, whether you're on NPR One, Spotify, and Apple. The link there, please subscribe, is fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. Follow along on all the socials at handle Full D Radio. My DMs are always open. And message me if you would like to carry full disclosure on your air. Stay tuned for a roster of big live events at the University of Richmond starting this fall. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. <laughs>